Shooting it raw? Yes. Shooting it raw. Hello, so welcome to Shooting It Raw. Uh, and this week's episode is also going to be a re-release. I'm going to re-release uh, episode 36 with Lisa Goldman on what it's like to ask uncomfortable questions. Uh, for those who know me, I had a massive change by coming, basically setting up again in Vancouver. And so now I'm in Vancouver, and uh, there are a lot of hurdles, of course, like getting a house and uh, sorting out the whole recording studio business and all that stuff. So I thought, okay, uh, I'd like to re-release Lisa's episode because it's it's wicked. Um, she's a journalist. She's an editor. She's done such amazing work. Um, she's done a lot of stuff in the Middle East, in New York City, Canada. And look, you know, she's gone. It's really funny. She's one of these people who also goes right towards where the action is some people are going to be defensive and kind of get away from it but but lisa and i really am getting this feeling like her whole family like her her sister as well adina they're also like they're all cut of that cloth where where it's like they're going to dive into the heart of whatever conflict or or intellectual area whatever it is so yeah listen in um it's an amazing uh episode it's fascinating and yeah what it's like to ask uncomfortable questions enjoy so for me now mostly photography has become a political uh art for me and uh, I didn't really intend it that way you know I would rather see photography strictly you know as, as a more like a less political art but because I spent so much time in the Middle East as a reporter um, on the ground you know working a lot alongside photographers um, I started to really inhale the, um, the the idea of the power of the image um, to affect perhaps not policy but definitely the discourse and uh, and so for me, yeah, photography, I, you know, I often look at very old photographs. I'm also sort of an amateur history buff and I, I love looking at, at old images from the late 19th century. Um, but mostly I see it as a political art. Okay, that's great. Lisa Goldman, thank you so much for joining me on Shooting It Raw. Uh, and, and as we talk, we'll get to know you. And uh, this, we've known... Uh, of each other a little bit, a, sort of a, through your sister. Uh, yeah, I've always known about the, the the great work that you do, and we've exchanged by email and never quite spoken. And so this is the first time we were actually talking to each other. And for me, it's a big treat, a real honor. For me too. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> so good. Uh, you're in Montreal and I'm in Hong Kong. Is that right? Yes, I'm in your hometown, right? Yeah. Yeah, I moved to Montreal three years ago. Oh wow, it's been three years already. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, and so let's go. Let's work backwards from before Montreal. Where were you living? I was in New York, but um, I sort of uh, yeah, I was in New York before Montreal, and before New York, I was in Israel, and be- I, I basically since I finished high school um, in 1984, I've sort of. I spent about 33 years shifting back and forth between Israel and New York, but not 
not on, not every couple of years i would spend like a decade in in one country and a decade in the other so okay. it's I, maybe a bit too much information but yeah um so, <laughs> there's yeah. never too much information <laughs> yeah back and forth back and forth and um each time i'd sort of come back to israel or come back to new york after a very long absence I, i'm not the kind of person who gets nostalgic for places and visits them frequently once i've left them after i'd been away from new york uh from 1999 until 2011, I, I moved back and I, I really hadn't been back very frequently. Um, and it was just like coming home. But yeah, so Montreal. And then um, after, shortly after Trump was elected in 2016, he wasn't the, he wasn't the, the election of Trump in 2016 wasn't like the, that the aftermath of that wasn't the, the, it wasn't the catalyst, but it sort of shifted the way I saw the world a bit. And all of a sudden I started looking around at my life in New York and thinking can i can i afford to grow old here you know you suddenly suddenly you wake mm-hmm. up to the fact that you're middle aged right and um and i'd always lived this very sort of bohemian unattached unrooted lifestyle you know i don't have children i don't have a long i don't have a life partner and um and and new york really had by then i'd been back for 5 years and it, and and i had a really nice tight knit community of friends there and i i liked it there but i i was also starting to feel exhausted by how terribly um, depleting New York can be in in many ways. Not and it's very it's also very very expensive. And I and I sort of did some mental calculations and I realized that you know I'd be hitting my if I stayed in New York, my earning power would never keep up with the mm. cost of living. And I'd mm-hmm. probably you know be I'd reach a point where I could no longer afford to rent an apartment, and I would never have enough to buy one. So I decided, okay, I better leave. <laughs> right. So I left, and I yeah chose Montreal. Wow. Yeah. Wow, sweet. Um, okay, so let's go into the uh, first photograph. Just so that, like, usually that's kind of how I end up connecting and, and learning more and just exchanging more with the guest. So in this case, uh, the one is uh, telling a story. So it's a black and white photo. And let mm-hmm. me just describe it for, for, the, for the person listening. So it's a portrait of you. Uh, very, very nice. You're, you're just about, either you're, you're suppressing a, a grin or you are grinning, or you're suppressing a laugh, but you know it's a mm-hmm. real sort of uh, heartfelt, humorous, honest emotion. The image is black and white. You're you're looking off to somebody to your, I guess it would be your left. Uh, you're wearing a, like what's probably a cardigan, uh, gray. Oh and yes, yeah. The the background the background is is uh, blurred. Uh, it's a beautiful soft. Uh, touching, touching portraits. So why, why choose this one? Um, well, I, I really like the way I look in that photo. It feels, um, it, it, it reflects the way I'd like to be perceived by the world in many ways. Um, uh, it was taken by a friend of mine in Tel Aviv. Uh, his, my friend's name is Idan Gazit, and he's a real amateur photography buff. He actually taught me how to use an SLR. And this photograph was taken in about 2010, 2009, 2010. And we were all sitting um, at a restaurant in South Tel Aviv that was very popular at the time. Um, It served Tali. It was called Tali. And it it served Indian, uh, set menu Indian Talis. And everyone just sat on the floor and ate. And uh, it was a very relaxing atmosphere. And Idan had brought his camera. He was just taking random photos. And I was at that moment in the middle of telling one of my uh, stories. I love to tell stories and, uh, you know, hit that punchline and uh, sort of, how shall I say, uh, 
not exactly massage the telling, but sort of, you know, um, make the, I, I like to tell a story that makes people laugh and, and um, sort of makes them think. And, uh, and uh, I, yeah, and so I was in the middle of telling a story. At the, I don't remember what the story was, but he caught me just at the point where I was about to deliver the punchline mm. of the story. Yeah. Nice. And all, all of my stories are taken from real life experiences. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah well, I think that kind of touches on uh, 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 an interesting point is, is that, so I had your sister on the podcast and one of the interesting things that, that must have been in the water while you two were growing up, or it's definitely, I mean, from your, from your mom, maybe, I, I don't know, is that you both have a very a clear, conscious self-awareness of around social justice, but also around either is it writing wrongs or is it like figuring out how to, to it's a commitment that I find that isn't very common, but is, is mm. you both share, which is really interesting. Yeah, interesting you should say it. Hmm. So, it's it's a very interesting question. First of all, uh, we did not grow up in a political home at all. We never, I don't recall us ever having um, substantive political conversations in our home. Um, you know, we were in this, I grew up in the 1970s and in Vancouver and, and the, from the 1970s to the early 80s. And we were what I would call, we didn't call ourselves that then, but I would call ourselves, I would, in retrospect, I would say we were Trudeau liberals, like we we just you know axiomatically voted for the liberal party because i just felt like the, you know that's more or less what jews did i i really don't feel that um any particular worldview was was um imparted to us by my mother my mother was a very self-absorbed person she sort of had a lot of personal pain from her own childhood and she was quite you know she had many many loving qualities which i extol on social media every year on her birthday uh she died in 2011 uh, of cancer when she was uh, just shy of her 68th birthday and um you know we had a very difficult relationship and um i i think most of that was just because she had a she she was a very um she had had a tough childhood of her own and she just had a lot of problems with self um not loving herself very much and i think that it was because of partly because of that that adina and i are so conscious of our of how of our environment and of being of not thinking only about our own pain but about thinking of other people i suspect and adina might disagree with me but i suspect that, that that's partly rooted in you know a reaction against our mother who was by the way a very very kind and generous person to her friends like her friends will speak to you even a decade later people will speak endlessly about my mother's generosity she would really go to extraordinary lengths on behalf of people who if they needed money or a favor she would really go to extraordinary lengths for them um but um in terms of social justice i don't recall us ever talking about that however i will say that years after i moved to israel and I, and I first moved to Israel when I was 17. And even when I went to Israel for the first time in my mid-teens with um, my Jewish youth group, I remember being very, very conscious of political injustices around me that, you know, my peers were, were oblivious to. And I do not know exactly where that came from. But I suspect, since I now realize, uh, going back to the theme of uh, acquiring wisdom toward middle age, uh, what I've learned is that when you, as you get older, you, you understand 
where um, your political, but if, if you have vehement politics in like terms of activism or, uh, you know, con- committing yourself to some kind of political work, it usually is um, an expression of very primordial and personal, it's, it's and personal points, um, feelings, you know? So I think, I think that most people who, who make a really solid commitment often to the exclusion of, of, um, personal fulfillment, which is not the case with me, but sometimes it can be for some people. Um, I think that that's often, you know, compensating for, um, it's, it's not compensating, but it's an expression of some kind of personal, something that comes from quite a, a, the way they were conditioned at a very young age. Sure. Um, so, so yeah, I think that we're both very conscious of the society the, of, of our place in the world and how we affect others and how they affect us and, and making the world a better place as a reaction to, to the way we were raised. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's, does that make, does that make okay. sense? Yeah. Well, look, I think, you know, part, part of, What's cool about these conversations, like the um, the podcast, is that we get to to dive. I'm I'm not psychoanalyzing you, but it's a yeah. it's a cool conversation. I find to say to turn to somebody and say, okay, what do you really care about? Uh, how do you and 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 the f- frame that I'm using is how can we talk about something or about how you see the world, how the guest sees the world in a way that in you know mm. inspires other people. And so, mm. uh, and of course, I'm curating the group by asking people who I think have something interesting to say. And so, right. for example, I have a very strong social justice bent as well. And to a certain extent, I have a, 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 a slightly, uh, you know, s- similar growing up childhood, like growing up in Canada to, I mean, my, my parents uh, emigrated from Israel and... You know, going to Israel young and being aware of what's around me and being sensitive to the politics, but then going back to Canada and having that juxtaposition reveal, oh, okay, wait a second, the world is really messy. Things are very complex. Um, mm-hmm. and, and to a certain extent, you could argue that Israel is itself uh, a, a country trying to figure itself out. And, and so there's a lot of tensions inside uh, in terms of ironing out problems or the the challenges the social problems the political problems but what i what i find really brave and interesting about you is that you uh, to use an israeli phrase that is very i love so much uh, <laughs> you went into the juice of the garbage but mit zevel i did i mit zevel yeah i did i did uh yeah, I did. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> this, I know, and we're going to get into that. So should we segue from this photo of you in Tel Aviv to the next photo? Because yeah. would, that, would, that, would that open up that door or will we get to there later? Like I don't know which, I, I can't remember which photo it is. So one tell I, me and let's see what happens. The one I, I picked, picked was the one in Istanbul. So that's actually away from Israel. Oh, yes, Istanbul. I was living in Israel at that time. Yeah. Interesting. Why did you choose that photo? Uh, because it's, it's, um, okay, so let me describe it. So you're inside a cafe mm-hmm. of sorts. It's beautiful. Uh, the walls are, mm. it looks like it's made out of uh, granite or marble inside all of the, uh, the, the, um, 
the furnishings, the tables and chairs are beautiful brown. There's somebody reading next to you uh, the Turkish uh, newspaper. But you can't see who that person is, probably a little bit older in their 60s from their hands. Next to that person, you can actually see her face. is a woman in an orange t-shirt. Maybe she's stirring her tea or something. Uh, there's a beautiful chandelier. Uh, the light's very nice. And there's two people on staff in the background, also nicely dressed. This looks like a pretty posh uh, cafe for, for Istanbul. Mm. Um, mm. And so when I was going th through what you gave, I, I, I saw these two and I thought, okay, well, th there's a story here. So, so we are going to get back to, to how you went through the juice of the garbage. But um, <laughs> so what's, what's, what's the story behind this photograph? That photograph was, in, it, uh, I took that trip to Istanbul in 2007 or 2008, and I went with a Lebanese friend um, who I'd, I'd never met her in person before. She um, had become aware of me because of a, um, a very infamous uh, reporting trip that I made on behalf of an Israeli media outlet to Beirut, which caused a, a massive furor, which I absolutely didn't expect, but in retrospect, hmm. uh, was incredibly naive not to have expected. Uh, so I, after that trip, like I received, a, I was, I received a tsunami of uh, emails from Arabs around the world, uh, around, around the Middle East. And some of them were, a lot of it was hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Scary. But, uh, but some of it was uh, very uh, compassionate and curious and incisive and, uh, and counterintuitive. And one of them, one of those emails was from this Lebanese woman who was at the time working in one of the Gulf states, but uh, she'd been born and raised in Lebanon. And uh, we started corresponding and we became um, sort of email pen pals and uh, really found a lot in common, but she only had a Lebanese passport. So we decided to um, meet in, in uh, Istanbul. So uh, I flew to Istanbul. I'd always wanted to go to Turkey. Mm. And um, she and I really hit it off. Uh, and we just had a great time wandering around the city together. It's it's a wonderful, charming city. It really is. Uh, yeah. I found, yeah, right. And it sort of, I felt like it was, you know, I sort of romanticized it at first because it seemed to me like it was so post-conflict. Mm. <laughs> and at the time, this was before Erdogan was elected. And it yeah. just seemed like this very cosmopolitan, um, beautiful city with wonderful people and food. And I don't romanticize people, people are people, but because the city was so, you know, beautiful, such a beautiful place to live in, the people who lived in it were, they, they suited the place. Mm -hmm. You know, they were very, um, they would sit in cafes for hours and read newspapers. They would sit under Galata Bridge and play chess and eat these fish sandwiches that were like five euros and they were wonderful mm. and um i was just i i really felt like istanbul was like my kind of city i mm. still feel that way like if you ask me to name my my favorite like five cities in the world like istanbul is going to be right up there nice um so um i we went to a lot of different cafes this is one of the reasons this friend and i got along so well um because we both really enjoyed just sitting in cafes for hours and and watching people um, this was the most, this cafe just reminded me of Ottoman era Turkey. Mm. I mean, it just seemed like from something out of the Habsburg era or something. So, uh, for, uh, and so I sat down there, I was looking around and it just um, felt like another, another era, another world. And also the people, the clientele was, they really were that sort of, um, sort of old fashioned, 
secular Turks, a bit snobby about the sort of rising Islamists around them. And I struck up a conversation with this older man whose face you don't see. And he spoke very good English, which is quite unusual in, in Istanbul. People don't tend to speak English so much in Turkey. And he was very fluent and um, very cultured guy. You know, he had a lot of literary and classical music references. And and so, you know, inevitably the conversation is, well, what do you think of Turkey? What do you think of Istanbul? So I said, you know, it's just so incredibly beautiful. And, and when I passed this cafe, which was a bit off the beaten track, um, I, I had to come in because it's just so gorgeous. And and he said, yes, but look at, he said, this place is just a relic. It's fading. It'll be gone in a few years. We're surrounded by all these parvinu, these nouveau riche people. They're building glass towers and all they care about is money and the Islamists and they're just ruining the country. And this is just, you know, a little piece of, a little cultured piece that's left and fading mm. and will soon disappear and um, he was, you know, pretty overtly elitist, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm only interested in hearing what he has to say. And he's a charming person. Uh, you know, I don't, I might not love all of his opinions, but uh, maybe I secretly share them too. And I'm, I'm just too politically correct to admit it. Um, and then while I was talking to him, I was thinking he really sounded like the old Ashkenazi elite in Israel mm -hmm. when they talked about the rising nouveau riche amongst the Mizrahim or, you know, the, the disappearance of cultured life in Israel. And it was sort of like an iteration of no one speaks proper Hebrew anymore. Everyone's so vulgar. <laughs> they care about money. The, you know, what happened to the old pioneer socialist ideals? It was really like mm. the Istanbul iteration of a conversation that I often had in Israel with these older people who really felt like the state that they had built was hadn't turned out quite the way they wanted and um and that you know the the lives that they had um, anticipated living just was you know the the life that they had once uh, thought of as iconic uh, emblematic of, of what israel was meant to be was you know they were just they belonged to a dying breed so hmm. that was i really felt like this guy was the iteration of the sort of north tel aviv um um sort of old old school Ashkenazi Israeli Jew. Mm. So that was one of my, I think I, I spent about four hours sitting in that cafe and um, talking with that guy and talking with other people and reading and writing. And um, it, it was a very peaceful place to be. But I, I also did feel that um, from that conversation that there was something a little bit shaky about Turkey and yeah. uh, and soon after that, Erdogan was elected, right, and, and right. indeed things became shakier. Um, my my connection to to Istanbul. Well, um, I was after I was run over by a car and all that stuff, and I uh, I had a girlfriend at the time, and we ended up going traveling the Middle East. So we we spent I think about five or six months in Israel, and then we visited Jordan and Egypt, and we ended in, in Turkey, and we toured around. I mean, fantastic, beautiful, beautiful place. And when we got to Istanbul, we were there and uh, we ended up ending our five-year relationship together. Oh, my God. Yeah, 10-minute, 15-minute uh, conversation. Because we kind of just grown apart a little bit. And, and, and I always talk about Istanbul. Like, if you're going to have a breakup, Istanbul is the most romantic, beautiful place to have, you know, to end a five-year relationship. <laughs> but what was it? Was it a painful breakup? 
Uh, no, it was it was um, it was a very rational. Very, I mean, uh, she and I are both. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we're, it, it just we just there was no magic, right? So because of that, mm. it was like a fifteen minute conversation, and then we went down to the travel uh, agent, and we I bought a ticket for Toronto, and she bought a ticket for Vancouver, and the next day we we parted. Yeah, it was pretty intense, but but romantic, beautiful city. If you're going to end a relationship. Highly recommend for sure. <laughs> I, you know, I wouldn't mind because I my 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 iconic breakups were in uh, Paris and in uh, Bangkok, and neither one was worth was worth uh, talking about. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> so you sound like a much more balanced person. <laughs> uh, well, listen, don't project. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> So wait, so let me rewind because you you kind of you opened the door to get to 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 this photograph or this photograph opened that door and let's see what goes what's in that door number one was you had written a piece that had created a lot of noise and a lot of you know you know you, I mean you are a well published how I would say was uh, how I used to put it is like a, like a grain of sand under your lid you know it's just it's undeniable it's there. People have to pay pay attention and, and sort of uh, face it. So, in your case, the uh, describe the article and why why there was that reaction. Hmm. Well, it wasn't it, it it wasn't an article. It was a television spot. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. That I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, it's fine. Um, it was a long time ago, a really long time ago. But it had um, such a ripple effect on my life, and um, I'm, I still feel it to this day. Um, mm. But um, I mean, to a very small extent these days. But it's definitely not something that just faded away. Um, so you know, during the tw- uh, this was um, exactly one year after the 2006 war between Israel and Lebanon, and. Um, Everyone was, uh, all these parachute journalists were rushing off to Beirut to do articles and and television spots for all the international media, basically, about, you know, where was Beirut a year after the Israeli bombardment of 2006, the summer of 2006. And that particular war, 2006, like it was very, you know, it was something that I really experienced up close. I was up at the northern border during the bombardment period. Um, It was, I had a lot of friends in Lebanon people I people I knew in real life and um, and and people that I didn't know in, in person but at the time you know there was a whole sort of conversation going on amongst a certain kind of globalist elite <laughs> amongst Middle Easterners uh, via uh, blogs mm-hmm. and uh, so you know and, and and also I was working as a reporter I was working as a as, as a reporter and as a what's called a fixer or a producer for a foreign correspondent for the European newspaper. So we went up to the northern border and uh, yeah, it was very very intense. Uh, I have some very very intense memories of of being up there when the bombardments were going on and you know we're literally on the border. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, exactly one and that that war really was, I think, in in retrospect, a big a big turning point for Israel. But that's a whole other conversation. So precisely one year after that war, July 2007, uh, a friend of mine who was a dual citizen, um, she worked for an international, she was a dual citizen of Israel and another country, and she worked for an, uh, for a newspaper in that country, a prominent newspaper in her native country. And she got a commission to go up to Beirut with her Brazilian passport and, um, and do you know, a feature report. And I tagged along. 
And I had oh, wow. never been to Lebanon. And uh, I was just, you know, I went with my Canadian passport and we both checked into hotels. Wow. And uh, yeah, and I just sort of walking around and talking to people. And I was just, and I took a lot of amateur photographs. And here we are, photography again as a political tool. And yeah, we stayed there for, I think, five, six days. And I really didn't do any active reporting because I, I, I didn't know that there was any legal prohibition on my being there. But of course, I understood right away that, you know, Israel's not a f- hot favorite topic in Lebanon. And so I, I didn't strike up very many conversations with people. And I just um, just walked around. I had, you know, superficial conversations with people in cafes or uh, bookshops, but I didn't go deep. Mm-hmm. But I was very impressed by Lebanon. And um, I also, by the way, met up with a Lebanese guy who had Canadian citizenship and had lived most of his life in Montreal. And mm. he actually did take me on a drive, but he was incredibly paranoid. Um, I had one of those really old Nokia analog phones. And um, he said, um, you know, he said, can you please leave your phone in your hotel room? And I said, it's, it's turned off. It doesn't have a SIM card in it. He said, well, it could have a, a GPS device implanted in it. And right. it's just not safe. So. Um, probably in, in res- retrospect, uh, he wasn't that paranoid, but anyways, so, uh, I went back to Israel after that trip and I ha- was so excited by Beirut that I was like, Israelis have no idea how amazing and exciting and interesting Beirut is. And I am going to be the person who explains to them that, that they're, that Tel Aviv and Beirut are like twin cities and they have so much in common and, you know, what are we all fighting for? Right. right. And, uh, yeah. So I approached, uh, I approached a guy, I approached, um, Svia Cheskeli, who was the correspondent for, uh, Israeli, for Arab affairs for, uh, what was then Channel 10 Israeli News. And the TLDR is that they asked me to go back to Beirut with a video <laughs> camera. And just, yeah. And just, uh, I know. I know it was such a harebrained scheme, but at the time, you know, it, I don't know. I I was constantly doing really harebrained things. Like if I were to give you a litany of all the insanely stupid things I did uh, while I was reporting in the Middle East, like I, it would it would take a long time. But uh, so so he's like, here's five hundred dollars in cash. Uh, we'll wow. reimburse you if you use your international. Yeah, and they sent me back with a video camera that they literally taught me how to use. 10 minutes before the taxi came to take me to the airport to Beirut. So wow. uh, I had no idea. Yeah. So I had the little handheld camera. I walked around Beirut. I engaged people in conversations. I asked them if I could film them. I did not tell them it was for Israeli TV. And uh, the report was broadcast the night that, that Israel and, and uh, that, the, that the Israeli Lebanon war of 2006, exactly one year later, top of the broadcast on Israel, what was then Israel's main, you know, most popular television news broadcast. It was, it opened the broadcast. It was a five minute report, which I literally like finished editing. I finished editing it like a minute before it went to broadcast. I was like, "Ah!" so panicky. (laughs) Anyways, so uh, what I did not know and should have known was that uh, Hezbollah monitored Israeli television extremely closely. Uh, And that's a very, that's putting it very mildly. So they completely freaked out when they saw that report. And, and I, didn't, I'm, I figured all this out in retrospect, but mm. they just assumed that 
you know, that the Israeli government was trying to flip them the bird and show them that they could get anybody into Israel anywhere whenever they wanted. And I just didn't realize at the time the consequences, which sounds insane, but I didn't. By the way, one of the things I did for that report was I sat on my hotel balcony with my back to the sea, with the point where um, Hariri had been assassinated in 2005, directly below me. Oh, wow. And I narrated a report in Hebrew, okay, Holy from shit. Beirut for Israeli television. <laughs> you know, and, and I realized afterwards, like, I was the first person to do an, a Hebrew language TV broadcast from Beirut since 1982 when Israel invaded. Wow. So anyways, it caused an absolutely enormous storm throughout the Middle East. And I was getting insane emails, which... To this day, I can't quite, I can't quite get a handle on the insanity of those emails, and um, was caught up in all sorts of conspiracy theories, and um, I had no idea about the political implications. And, I, and in retrospect, I realized that the producer of for that news program, not the reporter, but the producer, did understand. He was a very smart guy. He knew exactly what he was sending me in to do, um, and he knew what the consequences would be. But he didn't have the courage to tell me, "Don't do it." Uh, so, um, so I did it. And, you know, uh, what I was receiving was, you know, a lot of very angry email, but also some really curious emails. Like one guy wrote to me, you know, he said there are 4 million people in Lebanon. This was the day after my report was broadcast. And he said, there are 4 million people in, in Lebanon and they all know your name, you know? Um, (laughs) and, uh, there were a few foreign correspondents who in, in Lebanon who wrote me incredibly like ad hominem scathing emails, you know, about how I'd made their professional lives so much more difficult because now Hezbollah was extremely suspicious and has, was forcing them to get yeah new accreditation. And, right. Um, and so, you know, I'd made their lives difficult. And what was I trying, what was I thinking of when I did that silly stunt? And I was like, stunt, I didn't, I really had no idea. Mm. And then, but also a lot of um, Lebanese people from not only Lebanon, but from around the Middle East, actually, they weren't writing me from Lebanon. They were writing me, most of them lived in other parts of the Middle East. And, you know, they were just incredibly, a lot of them were just incredibly curious. Mm. And I remember years ago when I, when I told Israelis about these um, Lebanese people who were just like curious in a sort of a benign, not hostile way, uh, they were like, oh, they must have been Christians. And I was like, no, actually, (laughs) you know, there's this amazing prejudice amongst Israeli Jews where they think that somehow Christians are less inclined to be hostile toward Israeli Jews and that, you know, that all Muslims are just like running around with beards and and machetes, um, uh, you know, crying out for Jewish blood. And it's just remarkable. That was, you know, one of the things that I was always sort of fighting against when I was doing my reporting in Israel, in the Middle East. So anyways, um, I actually ended up making some very, very interesting friends, including like one guy, not Lebanese. He was from a different Middle Eastern country, um, but very, very politically aware, very bright, like great guy. And he started writing me these really long emails. He was attending a very prestigious university in the States and he was writing me these really long emails. And I was, I would read them and there'd be like 2000 word emails. And I was like, Oh God, I don't have any, I don't want to engage. It's too exhausting. And, um, but he ended up writing, you know, writing me postcards because he started. He was working for an international NGO, and he was writing writing me postcards from really extraordinary locations around the world. And then one day he uh, wrote me an email that was like one line: "I'm in Israel, you know, I'm in Jerusalem." Wow. And uh, yeah, he ended up becoming, you know, a very important part of my life for a long time, and we're still very close in many ways. And um, so there you go. Wow. You know, it really, it really affected my life. You know, it affected my romantic life. It affected my friendships. It affected my pat- patterns of travel. Uh, you know, the subjects I was interested in. 
Um, but it also, mm-hmm. you know, it brought me a whole lot of trouble, not just with Lebanon, which I can never visit again, but also, um, you know, with the Israeli, the Shin Bet was, you know, they were after me and I was interrogated and uh, oh, wow. quite a, a few people. Yeah, it was it was not pleasant for me. I was I, 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 a lot a couple of people in with positions of power over me in Israel, you know, in, in bureaucracy sort of used that trip as leverage against me. It was it was unpleasant. There was a, it was a hard time for me. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, yeah. I think that's part of my awareness of who you are and my associations of when I think of you because of what Adina has said and and now listening to you talk. I mean, you know, from the first image, you like to tell stories and you come to a punchline and and look, I'm like that too. But uh, that's a hell of a, a story. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's full on. Because I think it's 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 funny or interesting to see what bravery can look like. And I know that when people talk to you about you, it feels weird because it you know it's just you. So you're just like, oh, it, it's kind of like well, right. you have to kind of recognize yourself in whatever people are saying. But uh, from the from the outside, the external, it looks super insane crazy brave so it's just like wow really amazing yeah people said that to me a lot that I was brave and it really um it's not that I'm a person who lacks courage okay I I but um I I don't think that I I framed that trip as a brave one you know I'm just uh, I was incredibly curious and um and I just wanted to see everything and experience mm-hmm. everything. Um, but yeah, we can. We don't have to because like, I know it feels really kind of awkward to be put on the spot and go like, uh, yeah, okay. Let's um, let's move on to the next photo. Okay, tell me. Okay, so the next the, the next image is uh, the Ramallah Manor Square. Yeah, Manor Square. Yeah. Okay, so you're standing. Okay, so it's like a kind of classic landscape photo. Uh, I like what's going on in the image. So uh, you're standing, looking at the camera. You've got your sunglasses perched on your head, uh, wearing a black T-shirt, probably wearing a shoulder bag, maybe a camera bag. Uh, behind yeah. you is that that class to me classic, very recognizable sort of the stone, the the sidewalks, and the, there's like a, a lion sculpture, and there's these buildings, just two 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 or three story buildings behind you. Uh, and there's a, a a large billboard written in Arabic. I I don't read Arabic. It looks like an ad for yeah. lime soda. Yeah, so it's an ad for for a soft drink. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what uh, what's the story behind this one? And I'm sure you're gonna open so, some crazy doors. <laughs> um. Well, the, that was a time when I, you know, Ramallah, it's like an hour's drive from Tel Aviv, but it's like, it's a different world. And um, that was a time when I, I used to go to the West Bank quite a lot for reporting. And also I had friends in Ramallah that I would visit, Palestinian friends that I'd met at conferences and, and they couldn't come into Israel. So I'd go visit them, which sometimes felt like going on safari because, you know, you go, you leave and the gates clang shut behind you. Um so that particular trip was a combination of going to visit friends and, and reporting. And that's like the center of, of Ramallah. It was taken in probably 2008, I think. And um, the, f- uh, the person who took it was a, a Palestinian colleague named Samer, who worked for an international media outlet uh, in Ramallah. He was very well placed and, and um, well-connected guy. Mm-hmm. And... Um, 
I think he had a bit of a crush on me, but we never discussed it. He was married. And um, so he, he, he was a very good photographer. He was a cameraman. He took that picture of me. At that time, when I went to Ramallah, I, and I did go very frequently, like several times a month, like it, it was a weird time because the separation, Israel separation barrier was still not, you know, it, it's, it's still not really finished. But at the time it was very, very porous. And, and so you'd, you'd go, you could avoid the checkpoints quite easily if you, were with a good driver and um but every time I went into Ramallah I sort of felt and I don't know I, I feel like you can see that in my eyes I, I I felt simultaneously you know very engaged um with what I was doing and, and the people I was seeing but also like like really gut-wrenchingly troubled by you know mm. what was obvious to me was that you know what was going on politically in terms of the the separation barrier and the increasing checkpoints and the the hostility at the checkpoints um, from the soldiers and the the checkpoints were gradually becoming um, more and more privatized, which wasn't discussed at the time. The, the Israeli army was sort of outsourcing to private security companies. And, lo- and a lot of these guys who were manning the checkpoints um, were not soldiers so much as um, they were they were Jews who'd come from the former Soviet Union and they'd, they, they were pretty um, burly guys and very nationalistic and right wing and they spoke Hebrew with heavy Russian accents. They didn't understand Arabic. Right. And um, they, a lot of them hadn't even served in the Israeli army. They had served maybe in the Russian army. And yeah, they treated the, the to, sometimes it was just agonizing to see at the checkpoints that uh, there was no language. There was no shared language, but the, the, the people who were manning the checkpoint would often like be very aggressive, violently, verbally violent, also physically violent, but verbally violent. Um, with mm. these Palestinians who might speak, he- they might speak English and Arabic, but not Hebrew or Russian. And so you, you'd have these newcomers from the former Soviet Union who spoke quite poor Hebrew with heavy Russian accents. You know, they had the power over these Palestinians who were going through checkpoints inside their own territory yeah. and being yelled at and screamed at in a language they couldn't understand. So I'd always be a witness to these things coming in to the to Ramallah, and it sat heavy with me. But I didn't want to talk about it with my Palestinian colleagues because, you know, what am I going to do? Like tell them how guilty and bad I feel about the fact that the country I'm a citizen of occupies them. It's yeah. So um, on the one hand, very interested to be there. Always good stories to to cover there. Always good friends to see. Always interesting experiences to have. But also mm-hmm. um, feeling like a very heavy weight. And uh, then, I, you know. It's, it's always a day trip. You know, I very rarely stayed overnight in Ramallah, very rarely. There was this incredible cognitive shift, right? Because I'd get up in the morning, I'd have a coffee at my local, like, coffee cafe in Tel Aviv, um, and then, you know, get a, get a lift or something to Ramallah with, a, with another reporter or a friend, and you just shift realities yeah. in one hour. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and, I'd, and, I'd, and then you'd come back and... Sometimes I'd I'd be so heavy with what I'd seen, and when I could still go to Gaza, um, I'd also come back from Gaza, like feeling a very heavy weight from what I'd seen. And you know, you come back, and everyone's just cheerful and going to yoga classes and sitting in cafes and sipping espressos and strolling on Rothschild Boulevard, and with no clue, yeah. really. I mean, you know, and sometimes people would say, "Oh, well, you're Nirmala. What was it like? What did you see?" And then their faces would sort of change when you would tell them, you would answer their question, like, "This is what I saw." Right. And uh, and they would not like to hear that. They would say, oh, it's just a few rotten apples or you didn't really understand. That was my favorite one. So you didn't really understand what you sure. saw. 
you know, and so after a while, I just stopped talking about it. But I think basically at that point, I'd been living in Israel for nearly a decade. I mean, I'd lived there in the mid 80s for a few years and I'd, I'd come back in 2000. And and I think by that time, I was I was really starting to like that, that sensitivity to justice that we talked about earlier. You know, it was really coming to the fore for me. And, and um, I, I was I, I felt that I. Yeah, I was carrying a lot of weight on my shoulders, just trying to, I didn't want to be that asshole who's always preaching to people about politics, you know, um, like, like those, I just, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to grab people by the collar and say, listen, you need to listen to me. This is what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and be sanctimonious. So I didn't talk about it much, but more and more, I'd, I'd be walking around Tel Aviv in a sort of a haze and, um, you know, I, I was feeling less and less comfortable in my own skin. Like I didn't, I didn't really, I felt less and less like I belonged any place, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. I, and, uh, and I also like, yeah. And I, and th- when I tried to sort of shift my social activity toward people whose politics were aligned with mine, I mostly didn't like those people. Like I found them sort of humorless and rigidly ideologically rigid and, uh, uh, and sanctimonious in their own way. And so I was feeling quite alone in that, at that time right, as well. Right, right. Yeah. For the people who never experienced that sense of, of dislocation in a way, where, and, and the thing is, you'd put yourself in that position regularly, right? To go, to be in this mm. one context one day, uh, one, 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 not one day, one, one morning, one hour. And then, as you said, like uh, an hour later, being a completely different world, and, you're just, and your brain is like, okay, like just this whole, yeah, yeah just the dislocation. It, and you'd do this yeah. again and again, in a way, you'd experience these things again and again, they're, they're, they're shocks. Would you say that's part of what would eventually, um, so for example, in, in my work, you know, in my day job, you know, we talk about how, the power of attraction is not as strong as the as the, the power of repellent forces. So, for example, when Delia and I decided to come to Hong Kong, we were we came because of the strong attractions, right? There were serious attractors that said, "Okay, come." So we did. Uh, and then over time, though, there have been little steps that have begun to repel, right? So. In a way, those repulsive forces are stronger than the attractive forces. And in your case, mm. the attractive forces of remaining in, in Tel Aviv and in Israel, uh, which I, I can identify in myself as well, at some point were not strong enough because the repellent forces were, were, were stronger than the attractive forces that pulled you to New York. And now the, the attractive forces of Montreal have pulled you from New York to Montreal. So, cause it takes a lot of, of, you know, personal strength because, you know, of all the things that you could be doing with your time, you know, you're living in Tel Aviv, going into Ramallah, going into Gaza. That's, that says a lot about what you are like, about who you are, you know? And, and how do you look back on that time now when you're, about to enter winter in Montreal during huh. COVID COVID nineteen, like that must feel like a completely different world. Yeah, uh, it's. I think that's a really astute and uh, sensitive analysis that you just gave um, about um, you know being repelled by a place that you'd initially been attracted to, or 
or seeing the things that repelled you sort of outnumber the things that, that it initially attracted to you. And that is what happened to me in Israel. You know, when I, I got there in 2000, just before the second Intifada began, and I was, I saw the red flags of the place, you know, there's nationalism, I don't really like that. But, um, but it also was a very exciting place. And it seemed like a very hopeful place at the time, like we didn't realize that all of that hope from the Oslo Accords was about to explode and implode. But I still really loved loved the place. But after, after a while, it became impossible. And when I think about Israel now, like as we as we look into the COVID winter of our discontent, yeah, I, I talked um, a few months ago, I was saying to some Israeli friends in Montreal, um, I think maybe I'm just going to go to Israel for a couple of months this winter because, and I haven't been back to Israel since 2011, by the way. Um mm-hmm. And I, I said, I think, you know, I just, it's going to be so lonely here with all these lockdowns and, you know, prohibitions on, on having people into your home. And at least in Israel, I have citizenship, I have medical coverage, I have a lot of friends, and you can just go for walks in the temperate weather and see people outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, and for various reasons, you know, I decided not to do it. And actually, these particular friends that I that I suggested that I suggested I might do this to are now as we speak on a flight to Israel. Oh and wow! Just as they got yeah, and 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 they they texted me just as they were about to take off, and they said, "This we're doing it, but it was a bad idea, and uh, you sh- you're better off staying where you are because there are very few flights, and they're only direct flights because you can't you know do layovers in the era of COVID, mm-hmm. and um and the flight they they is full of people who you know, very religious people and people who are not interested in observing masking protocols and are fighting with the flight attendants. And um, (laughs) yeah, it sounds familiar. So I, I've decided my apartment is my oasis. It's full of books and music. And I have um, a small group of friends who live very COVID safe lives as far as they can be. And I'll just socialize with them in the winter mm-hmm. and just get through it you know mm-hmm. i'm i don't have a big problem with solitude I, I actually enjoy solitude um but like most normal people when solitude is imposed upon me it can become it can become onerous and yeah, I, I worry sure. about that you know i really worry about that but I, I i think that covid is so bad everywhere right now or everywhere that i could potentially spend a few months that um it's just really better to stay where you are and uh, sure. ride this one out for yeah yeah um but i am nervous i'm definitely nervous about the winter because you know how montreal is and uh, in, in january february until the middle of march it's like you're snowed in man you know everything is about the weather between 2016 2017 i spent uh the year uh, half of the time in montreal and then half the time in victoria bc yeah winter in montreal is hard it's really hard and i you know like uh uh, the quality of life in Canada is really, really high. And it's really great. But the locked-in feeling, and I can imagine with, with COVID, it, it's going it, it, you know, it, to, it might even feel uh, worse. On the other hand, I think how Canadians deal with it is by being social within the small sphere of people that they have. So seeing, seeing your friends. And, and that, in a way... That's the same in Hong Kong. That's the same. Like, actually, my parents uh, were in Israel, and uh, they, I mean, Israelis are like Americans, and they're just like, you can't tell me what to do. You know, I, like, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to wear a mask. And so they, they had like yeah. nine, I mean, for a city, like, sorry, a country of like seven and a half million, they were having like nine or 10,000 new, new infections a day compared to Hong Kong, which yeah. has the same population that has like 
one twenty, you know, <laughs> like yeah. so. So my parents were in lockdown for they they went back for I think four or five months, and they spent about three of those months basically stuck in their apartment, and it's just. I don't know. I you know yeah sure it might not be minus twenty or minus thirty outside, but that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. You get to Israel, you got to go to two weeks mandatory quarantine. Yeah. If you don't if you don't have an apartment of your own to quarantine, you're going to be in some grubby hotel surrounded by people who are making jokes about the masks and you know not observing protocols and eating crappy food, and then you got to quarantine again two weeks when you come back. And this is just, you know, a month in quarantine for, it just doesn't sound like fun to me. I just decided that uh, I'm just going to make do. And, you know, one of the things I do like about Montreal is that I'm surrounded by people who really love winter sport. Um, you, you know, I actually saw just today, actually, the this post that you had put uh, put up in which you, I uh, think you went with some friends or something. You went uh, to some some of the cafes. I'm assuming in Mile End, so the Italian cafes. Yeah, Little Italy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And th- for me, that is the best Montreal has. Is those times mm-hmm. when you go into the cafe and you've got you know, you've got like people from all over the world who kind of mix the language and 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 you just have a great coffee and just yeah and sit and watch people. For sure. Yeah, Montreal has its uh, it, it's it's a really charming city in many ways. It's very low key, and like I remember once I was walking around in one neighborhood, and I ran into this couple that were um, Français de France, like French from France, and they start they just you know it's I think it's very charming that French people come here and they just um, they just assume that because Montreal advertises itself as a francophone city that everyone speaks French, right? So they just address mm-hmm. me in French, and uh, and and they said. You know, we're you know they said we're looking for um, the beautiful things and the sights to see, and we've been walking around and looking at all these houses, and you know we're wondering if there's any more neighborhoods that are more interesting to look at. They were in the plateau, mm-hmm. and uh, I looked I looked at them and I shrugged my shoulders and I said, "Listen, Montreal is not Paris or Lyon. It just doesn't have any like amazing you know historical statues or." Uh, monuments. It's just, you know, all the houses pretty much look the same on the plateau. I said, it's very charming, but they all look the same. And uh, you can find richer residential neighborhoods, but there's nothing spectacular to see in Montreal. It's just very pleasant. And, uh, you know, I suggested that they might want to see the botanical gardens or something like that, but they'd already seen the major touristy sites and they were looking for some charming holes. And I was like, this is what it is. It's, it's cafes and shops and and houses that have winding uh, stairwells out front, and that's it. Yeah. And they seem to quite disappointed. Um, but <laughs> I, for me, this is fine. You know. Yeah. No. For, uh, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. So some guy, just to give you an example of, like, I'd, I'd almost let myself forget how bad it could be, but some guy that I I met once or twice in Israel who. Um, writes a very far right-wing blog he's an anglophone from one of the um english like english-speaking countries and immigrated to israel many years ago lives on a settlement and um uh, a friend of mine sent me the link to a blog post he'd written about me that was very ad hominem mm. very hostile and uh just published recently and i'm like don't these people just want to forget about me uh mm. and uh and the mutual and this friend of mine said you know i think you should take legal action and i said oh for god's sake no i'm not taking legal action i'm the, i just want to forget about these people anyways you can't just ignore them in a way you can and you can't so i started receiving 
if I hadn't known about this blog post from my friend, I wouldn't have known what the source of the emails were was. But all of a sudden, I started receiving incredibly horrible, aggressive emails with like rape threats and hate and and, and my skin is quite th- thick these days. And and I just you know I don't respond or acknowledge that I've received them. But you know you read that stuff and you're like, really like there's there's you know a global pandemic and there are environmental issues and political issues and you know at the time the election in the states hadn't yet been settled and and I was thinking this is what's on your mind you know somebody who hasn't lived in Israel since 2011 who once wrote things with which you disagree you're going to spend your time sitting down and writing you know violent emails to her to a total stranger it just it's but I I wouldn't want to put my my toe back yeah it's obviously what a what a what a what a what a what an idiot what an idiot yeah, we've been talking for about an hour, right? Uh, oh my, wow, so, went fast. <laughs> so the question, the question <laughs> is, um, how do you do this kind of work? Because you have the the kind of the, the motivation is inside you, and you're self motivated. Mm-hmm. Actually, what's emerged a little bit is that is it it is psychically draining, and it is quite um, uh, it's very very you know it is it 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 pulls something out of you that is uh, that most people don't want to kind of you know entertain let alone do like uh specifically so then what can you what can you give to to people listening to this as advice to say well this can help you pull through you know i mean like what what for example what re-energizes you so that was actually that's an excellent question because one of the reasons that things did become so hard for me for a few years was because I had not invested enough in in those um, supportive relationships that sustain you when you're dealing with a lot of stress around you. And I didn't understand how important it was until it was too late. I was quite, um, I'd been living away from home by that, you know, for more than two decades. I, you know, I was going through a time when I was sort of um, not estranged from, but not you know, I wasn't seeing my family very often. I wasn't investing a lot in, in those ties. And uh, I didn't have a significant other at the time, uh, for most of that time. And yeah, what happens is when you get when you throw yourself into that kind of psychically draining work, you must have uh, uncritical supportive love at home. You just got to have it. Mm-hmm. And because if you don't, you will burn out in right. a bad way. And it can take years to pull yourself out of that kind of burnout years and that's what happened to me um and i just didn't invest enough in my personal support system i have a lot of friends a ton a ton a ton of friends and i love my friends but you have to create besides just good friends that you can sit and gab with and you have to create or have a a a kind of a group of a, a small niche of friends or or relatives who whose whose love for you and support for you has nothing to do with your work or politics. Right. They're just uncritically there yeah. for you. You didn't meet them through your work or through your politics. They're just steady there. If you don't really have that, no matter how strong a person you are, and and I I am a I you know one friend once described me as tough as nails, and uh, yeah I am a strong person. I am tough, but people are you know I'm also a human being, and I just yeah, didn't realize that you know you can't. You can't keep throwing yourself against a rock. You, eventually, you're going to break. 
so that's what I would tell people like don't just launch yourself out into the world at the age of 17 the way I did and just throw yourself at every single challenge uh draining challenge that you that you come across without first investing in building your community does that make sense to you that was great that was really great. Yeah? Okay. I, I know it's it's very strange to to kind of have uh, an hour long conversation about what makes you tick, and it, I know it, all fe- it feels a bit uh, <clears throat> excuse me a bit uh, um, uncomfortable or or unusual, but uh, I think it's been it's been a real pleasure to actually finally get to talk to you. It's been yeah, re- so mutual. I want to talk about you next time. <laughs> sure, absolutely. <laughs> 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 but no, this is this has been great. What I find interesting as well is that you you may not uh, know it, but maybe you do know it. But in how you express yourself, in in everything from your your accent to your pauses to when you think your sort of your act your reactions, uh, because I'm doing a, this is audio and I'm recording and I'm very aware of people's voices. Uh, I can hear, and you can take this as a kind of a, a comforting little hug that I can hear some common tones and notes in your voice and in Adina's voice, which is really sweet, really. It's really sweet. Even how you said that's nice. It's like there's a there's a cadence, <laughs> there's a there's a there's a it's it's there. It's just, which is I, I find very um, which is very beautiful. My my big dream, I'll tell you right now, uh, is to have you and Abby and I go to mm. Cafe Olimpico or whatever and just have ridiculous amounts of coffee and just watch people and just enjoy. Oh my God, you are so on for that. I can't wait. Shooting it raw? Yes, shooting it raw.